Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I am Elizabeth. This is episode, my goodness, 17 of season three, which is just my fancy way of saying of this year. This is an unplanned, previously unplanned solo episode. Do a little Q&A. Unfortunately, because I was sick last week, I had to reschedule some of my guests and that left a gap in the schedule. So what am I going to do today? My favorite thing in the whole world, which is come on and answer some questions. I have three questions that I want to talk about today. One is about dropping big time in your marathon PRs. The second is about getting faster, even when you're not young anymore. And the third is about watch data. (laughs) Some of those proprietary algorithms that you may or may not see. And yes, I did a whole episode about running metrics and we talked extensively about watches, but this specific question is gonna be relevant. It's about your watch VO2 max and your fitness score, that kind of stuff. But before we get started today, of course, fall races are coming up faster than you would think. And if you are looking for coaching, a plan, guidance, education information, just more than you've been getting, Running Explained, we have stuff for you. If you're looking for one-on-one coaching, some of our coaches, some of my coaches, are still taking clients for the fall racing cycle. If you're looking for group coaching, that is ongoing enrollment for half marathons and marathons. I'd love to see your pretty faces there bi-weekly on our group coaching calls. Training plus programs available for the self-coached athlete looking for a ton of education and information and a training plan, and then a quick check-in consult with me, Coach Elizabeth, and of course, training plans, all sorts of training plans, race plans, base plans, speed plans, all the plans you could possibly, well, that's not, that's not true. I'm still writing plans. There is a variety of plans to choose from, not all of the plans, but there's many, many options. So if you're interested in any of those options for your training or your racing, you can visit runningexplain.co or just visit Instagram and click the link in my bio. It is all there for you. All right, so this first question that I'm going to talk about that I got, I'm kind of paraphrasing because I actually got this question in a couple different forms. And this is something, this is a question that um, I've gotten from other people in just, you know, working with people, working with marathoners over the past years. And this question goes something like this. How is it that it seems like everybody is dropping huge time from their first marathon to their second marathon or whatever in the space of two marathons um, that are pretty close together? Like, how is it possible that all of my friends ran this race, you know, this time for their this marathon and then six months later they ran like a 40 minute PR for their second marathon? What's going on there? So I actually see this pretty commonly. And this is specific more so to the marathon than the half marathon um, because of the just demands of the marathon distance. If you're not a marathoner, you might already be kind of tuned out, but don't tune out. Don't change that dial. Um, We're going to talk about equivalent fitness and what this all means and, and how it might apply to you, even if you have absolutely zero interest in ever running a marathon. 
So what's happening here? I see this a lot. I see this a lot in coaching consults. I see this a lot with runners who come to us for one-on-one coaching and they say, look, this is what I've done. You know, this is what I can run in the half marathon and these shorter distances. And then whenever I run a marathon or the marathon that I ran, I was significantly slower than I expected to be based on my equivalent times in other distances. And what's typically happening there is that when we then just fix what was wrong or what didn't go right in their in their first race or we fix some training errors, then we're getting those huge drops in time from the first race to the second race, even if they're relatively close together. So what does this look like? I'll kind of amalgamate an example because like I see, I actually see this a lot. This is, I'd say, this is one of the most common reasons people like to talk to me as a coach, either in a consult or when they're looking for one-on-one coaching. And I'm gonna, we're going to use some rough numbers because this is an amalgamation of a type of athlete I typically see. Commonly, what I see in this athlete profile, we have a runner who's running around two hours for the half marathon, right? Give or take. And they run a marathon. And let's say they run a, a 4.45 or a five-hour marathon. Now, that's not. there's nothing wrong with those times. Those are great times. Like running a marathon at any time is a huge accomplishment, right? But for this specific athlete who is capable of running approximately two-hour marathon, they are underperforming at this longer distance, right? Why? Now, if it's the first marathon, right, we obviously, you know, the first, the first time we run a new distance, a longer distance, no matter what it is, we're just kind of in it to see what happens, right? You're like the first time you run a new distance, we are just to finish strong, see what, see how we feel at the end of it, not really focus on very specific time goals. So sometimes though, when runners get really excited, and I see this a lot with runners who start to get really excited about possibly having the fitness to hit specific time threshold goals, right? Like that sub four marathon goal, they get really excited and they get really hyper fixated on it. And then it's like, I'm going to hit that goal or bust. And so all of their training is focused on hitting this one very specific goal, whatever, maybe it's a 430, maybe it's a sub five, whatever it is. Like I'm just using these numbers as an example. Um, and then they kind of, they, they, they focus in on that goal to the exclusion of whether that goal is realistic or possible. And then on race day, they go out at that pace and then they blow up. <laughs> So <clears throat> it's not to say that that's what happens in every uh, for every runner in this scenario, but one of the issues is hyper fixating on a specific goal when you're running your very first uh, marathon and then not necessarily allowing the race to unfold in front of you or trying to force a faster pace than your body is able to handle. Commonly, when I review training history for runners who have who have this what we call this kind of mismatched PR, right, who are underperforming at the marathon relative to their shorter distance PRs, there are a couple. Commonly, I do find training errors as well as things that went wrong in the race itself. So, training errors are simply what it sounds like: just things you're not training, you're not doing right properly in training. Most commonly, this is running too fast on your easy days, right? Like this is. You hear me talk about this all the time because this is quite honestly the number one mistake that I see runners of all experience levels making. You're not running easy enough on your easy days. So that's like number one right there, number one strike against you. A huge training error is that you're not running easy enough on your easy days. The other types of training errors I tend to see um, with marathon training specifically is, like I said, hyper-focusing on a very specific goal pace, irrespective of whether that pace is appropriate for you or not. Um not doing the appropriate kind of work that's going to get you to your race specific goals, right? So, you know, if you're if you're doing like a ton of speed work or high intensity running, 
Um, I know that there are some, I don't even call them philosophies. There are some coaches out there who talk about how you can train for long distance races doing a little bit of very high intensity training. I don't subscribe to that. I'll be completely honest with you because it just doesn't, it's not, it's not how you train for a marathon structurally, not even to mention metabolically or aerobically. It's like structurally running three days a week and two of those days, high intensity intervals. That's not going to prepare your body to spend four or more hours of running continuously on race day. But that's, I'm going to get off my little soapbox there. Um, so yeah, training errors, right? Not doing the appropriate types of training intensity distribution, i.e. not running easy enough on your easy days, forcing paces and workouts that are not appropriate for you, meaning that you're then training in the wrong intensity zone, right? So you, you think you're running, you say like, well, this is the marathon pace I want to run. But when you run that in training, it ends up being more like threshold pace. Whoops, too fast. Or you're are supposed to be running a threshold workout, but you decide to run like, oh, but my, the calculator said this was my threshold pace. I'm going to do it come hell or high water. And whoops, actually, you were above your threshold. So that wasn't a threshold workout. That was something entirely different, right? So training errors. Now, let's say the runner has actually gotten through the whole training cycle and uh, they're training, you know, irrespective of any errors. What then can happen on race day, right? So the marathon is a unique beast in that you need a whole bunch of stuff to go right on race day, in the race itself, not even like talking about the train that leads up to the race. In the race itself, you need to get a whole bunch of stuff right and also probably get a little bit lucky. So you need to have the weather cooperate, right, to run the paces that you're trying to run. You need to then nail your pacing strategy, make sure you don't go out too fast. You also need to nail your hydration strategy, making sure that you're not getting dehydrated, that you're getting plenty of electrolytes relative to your electrolyte loss and sweat rate, that you are fueling appropriately so you don't hit the wall, right? So in the marathon where you're looking for at least 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour of running, and if you think that sounds like a lot, let me tell you, elite runners are taking more than that. Elite runners are taking more like 75, 90, or even 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour. That's what Kipchoge takes in his marathons. He runs them in two hours, and he's still taking 100 grams an hour. That's pretty amazing. Some ultra runners are experimenting with 120 grams per hour. So yeah, carbs, they are important in the race itself. Typically, when I see an athlete, like I said, with this mismatched um, race PR profile, the reason that they ran the time they did in that first marathon or the marathon that mismatched their fitness is because they blew up <laughs> because, right, they didn't start out and run like, let's say, you know, let's say they were a two hour half marathoner and they ran a marathon in five hours. Like they didn't start running the marathon at five hour marathon pace. They typically started faster than that, probably much faster. <clears throat> and then something happened along the way and they blew up, they hit the wall, you know, couldn't continue, slowed significantly, whether it was mile 16 or mile 18 or mile 20 or 22, and ended up having an absolutely massive positive split for their race. When I see an athlete with this specific profile, I get very excited because all we have to do is fix what was wrong in order for them to then perform again, with a little bit of luck, right? Perform the way they were supposed to perform in the marathon. This is when you see people dropping 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes off their marathon PR in a relatively short period of time. They're not getting twice as fit in four months. All they're doing, all we are doing when we're working with athletes of this profile is fixing what was wrong and helping them 
truly express their current fitness in the marathon and bring it in line with their fitness relative to other distances. So if you are thinking that you are this type of athlete, right? Oh my gosh, yeah, no, my my marathon is way slower than it should be based on my other race distances. This is something that we do as coaches. Like this is the, like it is, and it's so, like I said, it's so exciting to see an athlete with this profile because I know that with some probably relatively small changes to your training and developing your race strategy, we'll be able to unlock that potential and allow you to run the race that you're truly trying to run. It's also very unlikely, though, that you will then continue to see people dropping this much time from race to race over short periods of time, right? So what did I say? From that first to the second race, what we're simply doing is allowing you to express your actual fitness in the marathon by fixing some things that went wrong, right? But that what happens then is then we move all of our PRs into in line with what is an expression of our current fitness. So in order for you to then drop another 40 minutes or whatever off your marathon PR, your fitness has to change dramatically, right? So it's not to say it's impossible, but we know we're not getting 30% faster every single, every six months, right? It's just not possible. Um, it's it, You will and likely sh- and should, if that's your goal, be get, getting, getting faster overall, even if it's not linear, but in the long term, you should see a trend towards getting faster from cycle to cycle. But when we are looking to drop big time in the marathon, we need to make sure that all the other benchmarks of our fitness indicate that that is possible. The other time you might see athletes drop huge time in their in their marathon PR specifically is when they haven't run a marathon in a while and they have had that massive drop in fitness. I mean, massive increase in fitness, massive drop in times in other race distances. So this might look like a runner who ran a marathon five years ago, hasn't run one since, but they have been training consistently and dropped significant time off their other PRs. And then they run a marathon again and it's a huge PR. It's like, well, yeah, because they're much fitter than they were five years ago, right? So we always have to look at, you know, not just what the athlete has done in the cycle and what they did relative to the last time they ran this race, but what else is going on? What's the context in which this is happening? And so here's the thing. I know too, when you spend a lot of time on social media, you know, a lot of, (laughs) this is really funny, you know, you're going to remember the stuff that you're going to remember the stuff that you see that's like, oh my God, right? So it's that kind of that recency or whatever it is, like the effect that makes us remember the things that are like, oh my God, that sound, that's so huge. Like that person dropped 20 minutes, a 20 minute PR, and that person had a 30 minute PR, and that person had an hour PR. Like that's absolutely crazy, right? And you're going to remember that and you're going to think to yourself, why am I not dropping 45 minutes off my marathon PR every single time I, I run a marathon, right? But in those situations, I want you to remember most commonly, all we are simply doing is helping the athlete fix what went wrong, train properly, and develop a, a more appropriate race, race day strategy that allows them to then express what their actual fitness is in the marathon itself. All right, this next question, I love this question. This question is from somebody who asked, and I'm, it's a, it was a simple question, and so I'm going to make a lot of uh, assumptions, inferences here, is that um, I'm 60, can I still get faster at the marathon? Uh, so let's talk about training age. 
age versus training age. Your age, your chronological age is how old you actually are, how many years you've been alive on this earth. Your training age is the number of years that you have spent training. And when we look at elite athletes, professional athletes, we are commonly looking at athletes who have a relatively high training age, especially for elite endurance athletes. It's So even if you are looking at the narrative of, you know, I'm looking at athletes who are in their 30s, late 30s, maybe early 40s, who are being like, who are talking about, you know, slowing down or being at the end of their career and probably not being able to PR anymore. And I think the messaging that filters down to the rest of us is that, oh, you know, by the time you hit 35, it's all over. Like you're always, you're going to get slower from here, which is absolutely not true. With these athletes that we are looking at, and we are seeing athletes, you know, extend their careers, high, high level career setting PRs into their late 30s and early 40s, specifically female athletes, right? Thinking about Kira D'Amato and Courtney DeWalter, right? And think about these elite athletes that we are still seeing getting faster into their late 30s and early 40s, even though they've been training at a consistently high level for decades. And that's the here's the here's the key thing, though. <clears throat> Those athletes we talk about training age. It's not uncommon for elite athletes of that caliber. Obviously, they're not only insanely genetically gifted, but they have often been running at a very competitive level for a very long time. It's not uncommon for athletes of that caliber to start running competitively in middle school or at least in high school, right? They run high level, you know, they run competitively in high school, they run in college, and then they turn professional and they are running, they are professional, high volume, dedicated athletes for years, right? So when you then have an athlete who is, let's say, 35 or 40, and they've been training at a consistently high level, essentially since they were maybe 15 years old, that athlete has a training age of 20 or 25 years old. And yes, of course, we all have our own kind of natural peak. And eventually we're going to have a natural kind of the, the, uh, the ebb to the flow, right? Eventually we're all going to slow down. That's just life. But um, it's important to think about way, when you started and where you started. Because if you started today and you are 60 years old today, if you train properly, you're going to get faster. Will you be as fast in your 60s if you started as a new runner in your 60s as you would be if you had started in your teens or 20s? No, right? Like, you know, age comes for us all. But will you be faster the more you, tr with training from the, can, compared to the day that you started? Absolutely. Can you still continue to get faster even if you're not 25 anymore? Of course, it all has to do with training age. Now, of course, like I said, everybody, of course, naturally then has their own kind of, think of it as like a multi-season arc <laughs> on, a, on a popular show, right? You all, we are all going to, like I said, slow down at some point, but when and where and why that happens is going to be related a lot more to when you started and how long you've been training and how consistently you've been training at the level that you want to or should be training at to reach the goals that you are trying to reach. Now, I know there's, what is this, like the, the 10 years or the 10,000 hours thing, like, you know, it takes about 10 years to reach your full potential, 10 years of consistent, dedicated, hard training to reach your, you know, hard does not mean high intensity, hard just means like, you know, doing as much as, much as reasonably makes sense for you. Yeah, 
you're not going to reach your full potential in a year. Even if you start at 60, you probably have a lot more to give than you realize. Now, of course, there's a whole lot of context here. Has this has this person been running for 20 years, right? Have you been running since you were 25 and now you're 60, right? Unlikely, based on where your specific story started, that you would then be able to continue to get faster. But if you are starting or have started later in life, yes, you will still be able to get faster. And I see this, this kind of... I even see this with runners in their 40s who are like, I know, I'm probably not going to get faster. I'm like, well, why would you assume that, right? If you've already assumed, if you've already written yourself off, if you've already made the assumption that due to your age, you are incapable of achieving X, Y, Z, or you are incapable of achieving a specific goal, it's that, that phrase, right? Whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. If you have already decided, well, I'm 42, I guess I'm going to be slow. Like what? First of all, that's not old, right? Just because, just because you are not super young anymore does not mean you cannot continue to get faster. But it also doesn't mean as a regular person that you should be continuing, you should be comparing yourself to the arc of a professional runner who has been training and competing at the highest level for decades, starting from a very young age, right? So just because you are in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. If you're in your 90s, please email me. I want to hear from you. <laughs> I want you to come on the show and talk to me about running. Um, don't assume that the professional runner's age-related career arc is going to be yours, unless you're also a professional runner, in which case, yeah, you probably have hit some of your peak years, right, in your 30s, in your early 40s. And I think it's just really important that we understand that even though age can affect our ultimate potential, it does not affect your potential in getting faster relative to where you currently are and based on where you started. And the other interesting thing is that there is actually a recent study done about age-related training uh, and performance declines. Because what did I just say? I just said that, yes, of course, if you are in your 60s, even if you're a brand new runner, the 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 peaks that you'll be able to reach in that age range are not going to be as robust or fast as if you started compared to if you were like 20 or 25 when you started in the peaks, right? Just because you know, age does mess with our bodies, right? Right. And there are a lot of things we can do to help prevent age-related declines. Strength training is a huge one, right? <laughs> Running consistently, aerobic exercise is amazing for cardiovascular health, right? But I think we all kind of know at the back of our minds that, yeah, eventually age is going to slow me down. And is there anything that I could possibly do about it? And how much might I actually slow down? So there's an actually, like I said, an interesting study that was done recently and looked at age-related fitness declines in endurance athletes. And what they found was that training volume actually accounted for a hefty portion of the actual losses in fitness as these athletes aged. That basically, if you are able to keep your training volume relatively consistent as you age, and maybe even bump it up a little bit, depending if that's appropriate for you based on what your current situation is, et cetera, et cetera, that you can actually mitigate a lot of these age-related declines. Like we can't prevent it, we can't stop it, we can't turn the clock back. What we can do is mitigate and prevent some of the losses from being as extreme as they could be. 
as we know, consistency, consistency is the number one key to long-term fitness gains and keeping what you got. If you can run consistently for years, you're going to be in a much different place than somebody who is running inconsistently, who kind of goes on and off the bandwagon. And look, I totally understand that life happens. I'm not saying that, you know, if you can't be consistent, that it's somehow your fault, right? That it's a problem that you should know. Like, look, I get it. Life happens. You are going to have interruptions to training. But staying as consistent as you possibly can over the years and decades of your training life can go a long, long way to preventing those age-related fitness declines that do come for us all eventually and can also then help if you are a later in life runner who has started more recently, will also help you maximize the time that you have in your training life to go after those big goals that you have. Consistency is key. So don't assume just because your age starts with a certain digit or numeral that you are consigned to XYZ types of goals that you're never, ever, ever going to run fast again and that your fastest days are behind you and blah, 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 right? Don't assume that. Don't ever assume that. Don't ever assume something about yourself because you don't actually know what could happen if you believed something else. Now, like I said, if you're an elite athlete listening to this, then yeah, you're probably not going to still be setting PRs into your 50s because you've been training for de- in, unless it's age, in, you know, world record age related PRs, right? We have, you know, there are master's records for a reason, right? We do acknowledge this, this age related decline. And will you be as fast in your 60s as you could have been in your 20s? No. But just because you started later doesn't mean that you are can't get faster. You should. And we are going to try to get you as fast as we can, just like we would any other athlete. No matter where you're starting from, training consistently will make you a better runner. All right, this last question, you're going to hear me talk about algorithms in your watch. So uh, temperatures are heating up in the Northern Hemisphere. And right around this time of year, I always get a ton of questions from people panicking because their watch VO2 max is declining. It's not your real VO2 max. That's not. It is an algorithm in your watch that is using heart rate and pace data along with your age and your weight, if you have that entered in, to calculate based on recent running data that you've provided what it's assigned your VO2 max based on like relative it's not even like like first of all it, your your VO2 max does not dictate what paces you can run right if your VO2 max is 50 that doesn't mean if you lab tested 50 if you go get a lab test on your VO2 max is 50 that does not then mean that you are going to run these hyper specific race times right so that so you can have a VO2 max of a certain amount, but that kind of points you in the direction of what you might be able to run. It doesn't dictate what paces you're going to run. And so when we when we think about that, we're like, okay, so the relationship between VO2 max and paces is already one that's a little bit fuzzy. Of course, there's a correlation, right? But it's not like oh, a one to one mapping. And your, what your watch is doing is, like I said, using recent, I think it's like a, I forget it is, 
they're very they're black box algorithms right like garmin isn't going to come out and tell me what their algorithm is but i'm pretty sure it's like a maybe it's like a it's like it's it's enough of a sample set but it's like most recent like 7 to 14 days of data that looks at your pace and your heart rate and your weight and your um and your age and it it feeds into this algorithm and says well based on your recent paces and heart rate here's what we think your vo2 max is and again it's not your real vo2 max studies have shown that quote unquote watch vo2 max can deviate from lab tested vo2 max by 10 percent or more right so if your watch says your vo2 max is 50 your actual vo2 max could be 55 or 45 or something different entirely as well and so what's happening in the summer when your quote unquote watch vo2 max is declining it's hot out so you're slowing down as you should and your watch doesn't know that so what it's doing is saying huh this person's running slower at the same heart rate or this person's heart rate is higher at the same pace that must mean their fitness has declined and it then recalculates your quote unquote VO2 max and presents it to you as if it's a useful informational tool, which it's not. If you're I, like, I, it's funny, I used to check my VO2 max relatively consistently because I thought, here's the thing. I thought, well, you know what? I know that it's not real, but what I can do is use it as a benchmark to understand my general trends in fitness. Yeah, but it's going to go down every summer for the most part. How is that like how is that useful? I'm not getting less fit in the summer even if I'm running slower. It's freaking hot out. You can still gain fitness in the summer. It's just going to be hot out while you do it. You're going to need to run slower than you would at the same uh, it, at those that same intensity in cooler weather. So if you are assuming to all these assumptions, right? So especially if we're doing a base building phase, I see this a lot too. I started doing all this easy running and my VO2 max went down. It's the same thing. Your watch is just misinterpreting. It doesn't have context. Your watch is just a, stu it's just a stupid computer. It's just a stupid robot, right? It doesn't actually know what's going on. Now, might one day we be able to program in some sort of algorithm that takes into account what actual phase of training that you're in and can make temperature-based adjustments as well? Sure, I assume that's probably being worked on by some engineer at Garmin or Koros or Sunto or Polar or whoever. I assume that's something that somebody somewhere is working on, right? Because if they can advertise that they have a really accurate VO2 max measurement, right? That's a selling point. That's a marketing tool. Somebody I'm sure is somewhere working on it. But until then, and, and even, even then, right, the more opaque the algorithm, the more opaque the thing, the less stock you should put in it. So if you don't know how that's being calculated, why are you believing it, right? Like, you know, you know how your pace is being calculated, right? You know how your heart rate is being measured, right? Of course. You know how your distance is being measured, of course, GPS. Right. But if you're thinking, well, how, but how does it even know what my VO2 max is? It doesn't. It doesn't. It's using specific data points fed into the algorithm to then make a whole bunch of assumptions. And those assumptions aren't always correct. And so when we are assume, when we are assuming that this fancy expensive gadget that we wear on our wrists is the be all end all golden god of information about us as runners we get into trouble because we start putting emphasis and outsized importance and belief and trust and faith in something that actually doesn't matter 
if your whole worth as a runner is wrapped up in your rapidly increasing VO2 max and then all of a sudden it stalls and then it starts going down, that's going to be soul crushing for you. Irrespective of the fact that logically you know it's July and it's 95 degrees outside, right? Even if you know that, if you are placing that kind of emphasis and importance on a metric like that, that is not aiding you in your training whatsoever. Same thing with that training status feature, right? And every watch I think has their own version of this. Tells you if you're unproductive. Uh, It tells you, (laughs) which is really annoying. It tells you if you're, whatever it is, peaking or blah, 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 all this kind of stuff, right? Same thing, it's making assumptions. Now, I'm not saying that those assumptions are always wrong, right? There's a reason these tools are being refined all the time and they definitely can have value. But do you actually know what unproductive means in your training status if you use a Garmin watch and this is a feature that your watch has? Let's explore what Garmin's website actually says about unproductive. According to Garmin's website, unproductive means, quote, Your training load is at a good level, but your fitness is decreasing. Your body may be struggling to recover, so you should pay attention to your overall health, including stress, nutrition, and rest, unquote. I love this. Like, uh, you should pay attention to your overall health, including stress, nutrition, and rest. But what does it mean when it says your fitness is decreasing? Because this freaks people out a lot. So again, remember, we're, we're, we're looking at the data points that feeds the algorithm, right? And I, there are some watches that are looking at things like heart rate variability and sleep and all that kind of stuff. But typically, we're going to look at what actually happened on your run. Like you went on a run and then your watch said this run was bleh, this thing, right? Unproductive could mean that you, it was hot out. Again, it was hot out. Your fitness was, de- was your fitness actually decreasing or did you just run slower than quote unquote normal because it was an easy run and you were tired from yesterday's workout or because you didn't sleep well the night before or because it's hot out. There are so many factors that go into our pace, our heart rate, our effort changing from day to day that have no bearing on our actual individual gains or losses of fitness. And there are going to be, there are a ton of runs that you're going to have in your training, which are going to be slow, 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 slow. And they're going to be productive from a training standpoint. Those runs are productive. When I look at a run that is true, an easy effort run that is done in your true easy effort zone, no matter what pace you ran or did a run walk to achieve it, That is a productive run in my book, whatever your watch says, because your watch is only comparing what happened on this one specific run to kind of the range of data points it has before. And it says, oh, this run was slower than normal. Guess you're losing fitness. What? (laughs) Hey, thanks for the vote of confidence, watch. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So yeah, again, now there are a lot of different ways. Um, Again, like I said, the more... (laughs) I forget who said this. And if so full credit to whoever actually said this, um, the, the more like removed from a real thing the measurement is, the less importance you should place on it, right? So like the more opaque the algorithm, the more opaque the process, 
right? So like talk about training status, right? Like how does it determine that? And how do you, how do you figure that out? Or watches that will give you like a heat adaptation score. How do you figure that one out, right? Are you measuring my blood plasma? That's pretty freaking cool, right? It's, and I'm not saying that these, these watches aren't really cool, but like there are a lot of things, there are a lot of features that come with our watches, which are very much like a, oh, that's interesting that they're trying to measure that. Or like, oh, that's, that's a cool feature that they're trying to develop. But to be honest with you, the most important thing that you need to know as a runner. And for my data-obsessed triathletes, <laughs> right, and your bike computers and all your, you know, trimp data and all this kind of stuff, you know, this is one thing. But broadly speaking, here is what I'm going to say. For athletes, the most important thing that you need to understand about your training is duration intensity, how you feel, and how you're handling all of it, right? And yes, we can get fancy, sexy, techie, data obsessed about all of these things. Yeah, we can go through and actually calculate your training load, right? We can talk We can talk about training load management from like an actual quantitative perspective. I'm not saying that doesn't have a place. I'm just saying that your watch probably isn't the be-all, end-all that you want it to be. Because here's the thing I've noticed about runners, myself obviously being one as well, we really want answers. We want guarantees. We want black and white situations. We want yeses and we want noes. We don't like to live in the uncertainty. We don't like to live in the maybe, right? So when our watch says, I think you could run this race time. When your watch says, you're being productive. When your watch says, your VO2 max is going up, we're like, yeah, cool, thanks. That feels like a concrete answer. It feels like your watch is taking a whole bunch of shades of gray and turning it into black and white information. And that makes you feel comfortable. It makes you feel safe and secure. And it makes you feel like what you're doing is taking you along the right path. But what I said, the converse, right? Oh, your VO2 max is going down. Oh, I don't think your race PRs are achievable right now. This is what I think you could run instead, right? Oh, you're unproductive. Ooh, oh my God. Okay, first of all, right? <laughs> we tend to usually only like the black and white when it's in the positive, right? I don't know people who are like, give me the answer straight. I just need a yes or a no. And they're like, no. And they're like, that's not the answer that I wanted. I wanted a yes, right? So <laughs> I don't, that's what the whole point is that I'm saying we shouldn't, we should learn as runners to embrace some degree of uncertainty. And if you are using these types of algorithmic measurements with your watch data, you have to understand that it is also not a black and white. It is also not a definite. And sometimes it's just wrong. And that's okay. That's okay. Actually, one, and this is absolutely not a sponsored thing at all, like... <laughs> considering how much I rail against watch features that I think are stupid. Um, absolutely no watch company will probably ever want to work with me. But I I switched to Koros last year from being a Garmin user for years and years. And the reason I switched to Koros, I have a Koros Pace 2. And I bought it at my local running store because you should support your local running stores. And it was like 200 bucks, which is for a running watch, relatively reasonable. And it does all of the things I need it to do. And it's minimal on the other weird algorithm algorithm stuff. Like it has it, of course, it has some other stuff, but I don't need my heat adaptation score, right? I don't need training status. 
It measures my distance. It measures my duration. It has workout builders, right? I can connect my heart rate strap to it. It does all of the things I needed to do as a watch, and it doesn't feed me any of the BS that I don't need. And that's what I love about the way that we should use technology. Now, like I said, you can get nitty gritty about it. You can get into the weeds with the actual data from your training, but but that's act, that's training data, right? So when we're getting really quantitative about the data that we are looking at in training, I'm not comparing heat acclimation scores or like trends in your training status. Those features are useless to me as a runner and as a coach. But what we look at is the actual measured data. How far did you go? How long did you go for? What pace were you running? What was the intensity zone? What was your heart rate like? Those are the things that matter. Those are the data points that do matter and the ones that we should measure, right? It's really important to know the difference between what matters and what's just noise. Or what's, I'm going to say not noise because I'm not saying that it isn't grounded in reality. Like I said, like these, obviously, I'm not saying that these types of features are wrong all the time. I'm saying that they aren't as accurate as I think you want them to be and overly relying on them to provide information that is presented as 100% accurate is not going to be in your best interest as a runner. All right, friends, thus concludes my fun little Q&A episode. I hope that you enjoyed this. It's not even a, it's kind of like a bonus episode. Uh, We're back next week with more guests. Very excited about it. And remember to slow down on your easy runs and to stay hydrated. See you next time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.